Well, welcome back. Good to see you all. This is the book we'll be going through. You'll get this at, at, after our study, uh, Man in the Mirror. It's about 12 bucks. Tonight, I want to look in uh, James chapter 1. And if you have your Bibles, that's fine. If not, um, you can just listen. James chapter 1. I want to speak about just the mirror. What mirror are we looking in? You know, the book's entitled The Man in the Mirror. <laughs> But what mirror are we looking in? And so I, I just want to read for us here tonight, James chapter 1, verses 19 to 27. So it says this, James writes, know, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself, and he goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his own tongue, but uh, and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this: to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained by the, the world. Uh, this past week, I was looking over some articles concerning my dad, who was a, he was a medical doctor. He was a captain in the army and served as a corpsman and went on to uh, start the radiology department at Wamsport uh, Hospital. And this was back in the, probably the 50s or whatever. I wasn't around yet. But I was reading different things on... Um, his science. He was a radiologist, a medical doctor, but he specialized in radiology. And uh, I read a couple articles, and Terry, you can let me know if this is correct or not, on the history of diagnostic equipment. Um, the article said it was back in the 1800s that x-rays were first discovered. And it was toward the end of the 1800s that Thomas Edison made a machine that allowed the technology to be used in some meaningful way. And then all of a sudden, what hit? The computer age. Um, and that field just blew up. It just went crazy. It accelerated at an unimaginable speed. Uh, and it was in the early 1970s that two men, Alan Cormack and Godfrey Usefield, um, Unsfield, invented a method of examining the body's organs by scanning them with x-rays. And then using a, a computer to construct a series of uh, cross-sectional displays, uh, or scans as we know them, along a single axis. It was called computerized axial tomography, or CAT scan. Um, and since then, they've added the PET scan, which has nothing to do with your dog or cat, but it's, it's a PET scan, and the MRI. Okay, we're kind of familiar with those. And then they even came out with something called the fMRI, which is a, a functional MRI. 
And the technology, instead of requiring something to be injected into your body, I don't know if they use this still or not, the article said that the equipment can read as is true with some of, of these other processes, and it relies instead on magnetic properties of our own blood to enable doctors to see images of the blood flowing through the various parts of the body. It can literally map out the flow of the blood as it flows through your organs, um, through your brain, through any part of your body, which is it's just an incredible thing. I mean, God has really gifted us with his common grace, with all these medical fields that that have just taken off with the, the technology. And it's amazing. They can, without even cutting you open, they can see inside your body. Um, and I thought of that, and as I was studying for this, I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful if God had that kind of tool <laughs> um, to do a spiritual diagnostic on us? You know, some of us may want that, some of us may not, right? It's kind of like when you go to the doctor and you haven't eaten right, just like, oh, I can't wait a couple of weeks and get this stuff flushed out of my system, whatever it is. Um, but some way to look and to look within ourselves to see uh, our true, not our physical condition, but our true spiritual condition. Because sometimes, you know, I don't know about you, but sometimes, you know, I feel spiritually on top of the world, and then other times there's something wrong. I don't even know what it is. It'd be nice to be a step in front of a machine and go, oh, it's this area of my life or that area of my life. Okay, I've got to straighten that out. Sometimes it's not always that clear. Um, well, James tells us in this passage very clearly that, that that device is the very word of God. God has given us something. It's not a CAT scan or a PET scan. It's not a, a mirror physically that we look in, but... It's a mirror of our souls. It's a mirror that we can look into God's word and we can see a direct reflection, really, of who we are spiritually. Um, and it's, it's a device that never lies. It never has a false reading. It's always accurately displaying our true spiritual condition. And every time we evaluate ourselves by God's word, I think that we, we know we get God's perspective on our spiritual state. Um, and so when we're open, <clears throat> opening God's word and we're willing to do that on a regular basis and we're willing to um, evaluate ourselves, not by our standard, not by our neighbor's standard, but by God's standards, then we get God's perspective on our spiritual condition. And uh, we see ourselves not through our own eyes anymore, but we see ourselves through through who? God's eyes, right? We see his standard. And so um, when I turn to the scripture, I find grace, I find comfort, I find help, I find teaching, uh, reproof, correction, instruction for righteousness, all those things. Um, but I also see the character of God. I see who God is. I see his greatness. I see his majesty. Um, and I find it on the, the perfect pages of this perfect spiritually, spiritual diagnostic tool that he's given us. And no wonder, you know, everywhere you turn in Scripture, when you're, when you're reading God's Word, um, that's, that's, that should be of utmost importance for every individual Christian, to have God's Word as the standard, God's Word as the foundation of our lives. Um, when I was in Bible college, I had a <coughs> professor who made a um, challenge to the the class for that semester. 
and uh, they said, he, he told us as a class, he said, you know what, I want you to read through Psalm 119, not just read it, but I want you to get on your knees before God and pray the words of Psalm 119 with an understanding that turns you heavenward, that turns you toward God. Not just trying to understand what it says, but really asking God to work through the words of that psalm. And you know what? It will truly revolutionize your reading of the Word of God rather than just opening it up and saying, okay, what's this text mean? I've got to study for this study or this sermon or whatever, and I've got to figure out an outline that goes along with this. But honestly, ask God to speak to your heart, obviously not audibly, but through his scriptures. Um, and there are, there are passages like that that just jump off the pages of the Bible when you do that. You think of Psalm 1, for example. We're all familiar with Psalm 1. Um, you know, it, it talks about two ways, the way of the righteous, right, the way of the wicked. Um, it says there's a way of the righteous and there's a way of the wicked. And it, it, it begins with the way of the righteous. Verse, verse 1 of Psalm 1, it says, Blessed is the man. Blessed, happy. Happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of the sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffers. And so he, he tells us what a righteous man does not do. That's how he starts. You don't do this. Um, you don't listen to the advice or counsel of the ungodly or the wicked. He doesn't get his tips from those who are outside of uh, the spiritual realm of who God is. It says, nor does he stand in the path of sinners. Um, that doesn't mean go find a sinner and stand there until you know, he runs into you. He's not talking about that. He means don't, don't follow their path. Don't, don't follow their ways. Don't follow their habits. Don't follow their lifestyle. Any, any, anything of those who oppose God, we shouldn't have anything to do with. We shouldn't want to um, follow people like that. It says, nor does he sit in the seat of the scoffers. In other words, he doesn't associate with those people who scorn God, who scorn the truth about God. Now, that doesn't mean we don't reach out to them. It doesn't mean we don't befriend them for the sake of the gospel. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying we, you know, lock ourselves in this room or a little huddle, you know, um, holy huddle, and, you know, that's it. We don't do that. We have to reach out to a lost and dying world, but we don't want to um, identify with their system of beliefs, their values, or anything of the sort. We definitely don't want to follow it. Uh, so if you were to read, um, or you were even to write a, a passage like the psalmist did in Psalm 1, and God said, you know what, I want you to describe a righteous man. How would you do that? What are some, what are some uh, elements, characteristics, you might say, of someone who would be considered, by God's standard, a righteous man? Okay, integrity? Okay. Careful how they use their words. Lives as he believes. Lives as, he's, as he believes. So he's authentic. What's that? Yeah. Or he declares 
All right? Study the word of God. Strives for righteousness. See, in Psalm 1, um, he, he really kind of tells us in verse 2. He tells us what a righteous man looks like. <clears throat> and he says this. Um, it's, it's one attitude and one action. He says, first of all, his delight. Psalm 2. Psalm, Psalm 1, verse 2. His delight. In other words, where he finds his joy. Where he finds his satisfaction. Where he si- finds his great desires. All right. Um, we could all probably go around and say, hey, what do you enjoy? And we'd all come up with a myriad of things. Hunting, fishing, working on computers, cutting grass, washing my hands, washing dishes. Okay, all kinds of weird stuff, right? We'd come up with all kinds of different things. Just according to our background, playing with my kids. Whatever it might be. That's our delight. That's our satisfaction. But according to verse 2 of, of Psalm 1, the righteous man's delight is what? What's it say? In the what? In the law of the Lord. It's in the law of the Lord. <clears throat> it's in his word. That's what he delights in. Uh, you know, we want to come up with all these other descriptions of the righteous man. But the psalmist gives us one description. What he delights in. Um, that's his attitude. It's what he does. Uh, it says, and he, in his law, he meditates day and night. Um, you know, if, if, if we want to know if we're a righteous person or a righteous individual, you want to know if you have a connection with God. That's the only way you're ever going to be righteous. Um, there's a lot of other tests that you can probably take that may give you that. But this test is a true test. Do you really find yourself delighting and finding that you have true satisfaction in God's word. I mean, this isn't a story. This is the real deal. This is something that has changed my life. It's changed your life. It has the potential to change anyone's life who will live in submission to it. But, you know, God says if, if you want to be righteous, if you want to be considered a righteous person, your delight should be in my word. Do you really find your delight, your true satisfaction in the Word of God. Um, that's, a, that's a great test. Secondly, do you meditate in it day and night? Are you, are you obsessed with it? Can you not get enough of it? Um, are you absorbed in it? Is that where you spend your time, your energy, your effort? Um, I mean, how important must God's word be if the only description of a righteous man at the beginning of all the Psalms, he says, you know what? The way you tell is his relationship to my word. Does he delight in my word? Back in James, you know, he kind of reiterates that in in a lot of different ways. Um, There in chapter 1, he's obviously talking to believers because he says in verse 19, he says, my beloved brethren, right? So he's talking to Christians. He's he's talking to people that know Christ. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, my brethren who hold faith in our glorious Lord, Jesus Christ. He's clearly talking about believers. 
But then in verse 19, he also adds the word everyone or every person. He says, know this, my beloved brethren, my beloved brothers, let every person, not just believers, every man, literally, it says in the Greek. So there's not one single Christian to whom this passage does not apply. Doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, doesn't matter how short you've been a Christian, least amount of time, whatever it might be. If you claim to be a believer in Jesus Christ, and this passage is speaking to you, and the entire paragraph really drives home that one spiritual reality. It drives home the idea that what is our response to God's word as this diagnostic tool that he's given us? Um, Let me put it this way. You can accurately discern both the legitimacy of your faith and the maturity of your faith. How? By your response to Scripture. By how you respond to God's Word. If you're a Christian, then there are some crucial questions that should describe your response to the Bible. James identifies three qualities here that characterize our relationship to God's Word. Three essential qualities that should describe our response to the Word of God. Um, In verses 19 to 21, I think he really points out a teachable heart. Is your heart even teachable? Um, We're just going to look at this one tonight. Is your heart teachable? Look what he says. This, know this, my beloved brethren, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Now, a lot of times, verses 19 and 20 particularly, a lot of times they're pulled out of context. Um, It's almost as if James pulled them right out of the air, just like a hiccup. Just like, oh, okay, well, I'll put this down there now. And nothing can be further from the truth if you look at the context of this passage. Notice what he says in verse 18. Look at James ends that section on temptation with what? What's he referring to? He refers, as has a reference to Scripture, as the instrument that God uses to bring new life to dead hearts. Verse 18, he brought us forth by the what? Word of truth, right? And then go down to verse 21 all the way through verse 25, it's very obvious that these words that he's writing about are about God's word. Not just logically, but exegetically as well. Um, Look at his argument here, James's argument. In verse 19, he begins by saying that there are some specific things that his readers knew. He says, you already knew this. Um, You know that you should be quick to hear slow to speak, and slow to anger. Because anger doesn't accomplish God's holy purpose. He says we already know these things. Well, how could James be sure he knew them? They knew them. How could James be sure of that? Remember, he's writing to people who were scattered from his flock by persecution. These were Christians under persecution at the time. James used to be their pastor. Now they're all over the place. He taught them these things. He knows that. 
they, he knows that they know these things. And after <clears throat> telling them you know this, he says, let me just remind you of what I taught you. And in verse 21, therefore, he says, put away all filthiness and, and so forth. So he wants them to know to, you have to receive in humility the word of God. It makes no sense for James to say, here's a general principle for you to learn. You should be slow to speak, therefore, in humility, receive the word. That makes no sense. It doesn't flow logically. See, verses 19 and 20 have to do with our response to Scripture. That's what they have to do with. I mean, these principles are generally true. I mean, we should listen more than we should talk. But that's not what James is saying here. I mean, that's a good little lesson for your kids, maybe, but that's not what the context is saying. Instead, he's talking about our response to God's Word. First of all, he says everyone must be, what's the first thing he says there in verse 19? Let every person, what? What's it say? Be quick to hear. Quick to hear. In other words, if you're going to be teachable... And if you've taught anybody anything, including your kids, you know that this is a valid principle. You have to be quick to hear. That is, in the context, quick to hear what? The Word of God. Exactly. Just because you have the structure that constitutes an ear, both an outer and an inner ear, by the way, God created it that way, that doesn't mean that you're actually hearing when someone is speaking to you, right? We all have wives. We've all had those conversations with our wives, right? And they start talking and, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. Watching the, you know, the third down or whatever on TV and, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, they're saying something like, well, honey, you know, I just want to talk to you about something that's really bothering me. Uh-huh, yeah, sure, yeah. And they think, hey, they got the green light. They're just bearing their soul to you. And you look over occasionally and kind of give them a nod. And you're hearing them. Yeah, I mean, their mouth is moving. You, you kind of hear the words that are coming out of their mouth. Was that a first down? Yeah, exactly. And finally, she says, so what do you think? Yeah. I'm sorry, honey. What, what did you say? <laughs> Wait, she must be saying something important. You know, I better stop. Now think about it. You heard what she said, but you didn't really hear. See, James is not saying that we should be quick to let the word of God collect in our external ear and then flow down through the channel of our inner ear. He's not saying that. He's saying be quick to really listen and what? And understand and comprehend. This is similar to what Jesus taught, by the way, in his earthly ministry. Remember, he would say things like this. He who has ears to hear, what? Let him hear. In other words, listen to what I'm saying. Not just listen, but understand what I'm saying. I mean, when you look over at John chapter 8, verse 37, um, Jesus likens this hearing problem or should I say he diagnosed this hearing problem as a problem of unbelief. 
in, in John chapter 8, verse 37, he's speaking to those Jews who were convinced that they really uh, didn't need to be freed from sin. That they were too righteous for that kind of talk. Because they were Abraham's descendants. And they'd never been anyone's slave, which was, of course, a bit of revisionist history, because <laughs> they were. But in verse 37, Jesus says, I know that you're Abraham's descendants. I get it. That's your card you're throwing down. Yet, he says, you seek to kill me. <laughs> this is what Jesus is telling them. And then he tells them why. Because my word has what? No place in you. That's what he boils it down to. Why is that? Down in verse 47, it says, it's because he who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, he's telling these Jews, you do not hear them. I mean, you hear me talking, but you don't hear them. Why? Because you're not of God. He points it out to them. Very bold thing to do for Christ back in the day. I mean, these were religious people. And Paul kind of bounces off this expression in 1 Corinthians when he says the natural man understands not, right? The things of God. They can't receive the things of the Spirit. They don't have the capacity. Now, they have the capacity to read the words. They have the capacity to maybe understand the sentence. But they don't have the capacity to truly understand and hear the Word of God. That's why unbelievers have such a problem hearing and understanding the Word of God. Jesus implies it there. Ezekiel says it very plainly in Ezekiel chapter 12, verse 2. He says, Son of man, you live in the midst of a rebellious house. You have eyes to see, but do not see. Ears to hear, but do not hear. You might ask yourself, why? Well, he goes on. He gives us the answer. For they are a rebellious house. They're living in rebellion against God. They're living in willing unbelief. They can't hear. But there's another reason. There's, there's the reason of unwillingness or inability, you might say, to hear the word of God. Um, in Romans chapter 11, verse 8, he's quoting uh, Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse tw- uh, four, but he says, just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not. See, unbelievers are both willingly deaf to the word of God, but they're also deaf as a result of divine judgment. That's unbelievers. That's the state they're in. But if you're a believer in Christ, then all of a sudden you have the capacity because you have the Spirit of God to hear God and to understand and to grasp the truth of God. So what James is saying in James 1 is be quick to listen and understand and comprehend the Word of God. John MacArthur in his commentary puts it this way, James' appeal is for believers to seize every opportunity to increase their exposure to Scripture. Think about that. Seize every opportunity to expose yourself to Scripture. To take advantage of every privileged occasion to read God's Word or to hear it faithfully preached or taught. And then he finishes, little, the quote finishes this way, The sincere, eager desire for such learning is one of surest marks of a true child of God. 
See, we need to be careful listeners. We need to be quick to hear because we want to get the message right. Not just hear what they're saying. Uh, Luke says in, in 1948, all the people were hanging onto his every word as Jesus taught. They were hanging on every word. I mean, does that re- describe me or you in our response to Scripture? Do we read it with delight in our heart? Do we hang on its every word? Do we seize every opportunity to expose ourselves to God's word? Have you ever in your life read all of the only book that God gave us from cover to cover? Do you spend time reading God's word daily? See, we need to be quick to hear, and this is how we hear God. I've been a Christian since 79, 1979. I've never heard God speak to me once, not once. And you know what? He never will. He never will. And he won't speak to you either. But God has spoken to us. Where? In his word. He's spoken to all of us who know him and love him, and ultimately, and finally, in a book, the book that we can read and we can study, that we can understand with our minds, he has spoken to our hearts. I mean, we should be quick to listen to the words of God. Every one of us here needs to understand that. Because I don't think anybody in this room can honestly say today, as we stood before the Lord, Lord, I listened to your word enough. I don't need to be taught anything more. (laughs) None of us could say that. And James says just the opposite, that we should be, what, quick to hear the word of God. So he says if you're going to be teachable, not only do you have to be quick to hear, but the second thing he says, what? Slow to speak. Right? One mouth, two ears. We always heard that. But what does that mean? There's a couple different interpretations of that. He may mean that we're to be slow to speak in the sense not being overly eager to teach others could mean that. And that was a problem to the people to whom James wrote. Um, as a matter of fact, one page over, chapter 3, verse 1, right? We hear this verse quoted all the time. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. See, those to whom James was speaking to were eager to teach. And James says, hey, wait a minute. You need to understand that if you're a teacher, you're going to have a stricter judgment than somebody who's not a teacher. So don't be rushing into it. Uh, It may be that, you know, there were Jewish Christians who heard the word of God taught, who didn't carefully weigh the implications and the application of the truth for their own lives. Instead, They just simply rush to teach others. James says, don't do that. Be slow to speak. That's what he's talking about here. He's not talking about having a conversation with somebody. That's how we practically apply those verses, which is totally out of context. It reminds me of Paul's warnings in 1 Timothy 3, verse 6, when he's going through the qualifications of elders. And he says, make sure that the elder who's primarily responsible uh, 
task is that of teaching. Make sure that he's not a new convert. You don't get saved on Sunday and you're preaching from the pulpit the next Sunday. That wouldn't be good. And a lot of times, you can, you can tell the legitimacy of someone's faith really by the time that they allow it to happen between their conversion and before they start teaching people. That's the problem I have with all these Hollywood types that, oh, they're gloriously saved. They're saved Saturday night and Sunday morning they're in some guy's church giving a sermon. What business do they have to do that? They're a baby Christian at best if they're truly converted. It shows me ulterior motive. Maybe in their, they're wanting to be in the limelight or, or whatever. I don't know. But what Paul is saying is don't rush people into teaching. He tells them, tells them that in 1 Timothy 5.22. He says, don't lay hands on anyone too hastily. Don't put someone in a place of teaching in a hurry. Don't recognize them as leaders and teachers. Be slow to speak about that. Now, that doesn't mean you should never venture out into teaching. It doesn't mean you should never venture out into becoming a leader. We need lots of teachers. We need lots of leaders in our church. Some of you need a kick in the pants to get down that road maybe a little quicker because you are qualified to do that. You need to be praying about that. I read this illustration. One writer recounts that there was a famous orator and he was asked by this young man to ask him. He asked him, he said, can you just teach me the art of public speaking? And he came to ask this, this orator and, and after he asked, he just kept on talking. He didn't stop talking. To the point that the teacher couldn't even reply and give him an answer, yes or no. And he finally stopped talking and the teacher quietly said, young man, I'll be happy to teach you. But I'm going to have to charge you twice the normal fee. And the young man was aghast and said, why? And he said, well, I have to teach you two skills. I have to teach you to hold your tongue and then I have to teach you how to use it good illustration. Be slow to speak. It may mean that's what James means here. Don't be overly eager to teach others. But I think it's more likely the second opinion, and that is be slow to speak in response or react to the word that's being taught. In other words, be slow to speak in a sense of don't be in a hurry to take issue with or disagree with the word itself, or the teacher. In other words, don't argue with the word of God. A lot of commentators believe that's what James has in mind here because the next phrase, he says, be slow to anger. Essentially, James is, is saying, stop talking, listen to the word of God. What? That's an appropriate application for us. We're all tempted in that way. Whenever we read a scripture or we hear it taught, and maybe it runs contrary to our own opinions or our own ideas or our own beloved doctrines that we have, what do we do? What's our first response? Our first response is stop listening. And we're, we're in our mind, we're already arguing, we're already working up a defense, we're already going there and, and figuring out, well, this, this guy's all wrong. We're too, men, too busy men, mentally defending our view to really stop and listen to what the teacher or the Word of God is even saying. A lot of times you see that in counseling. Those of you who've counseled people, 
people who've convinced themselves that their way is right and, and their other way is wrong, um, they can't hear it. You can share scripture with them after scripture after scripture, but you know what? They're just too busy defending their own view. They're too busy talking. They're too busy justifying what they want to do. They're too busy sharing their own mind, their own ideas that are in their minds. And sometimes, I remember one time I was counseling a couple, and I had to, literally I had to stand up and slap the table and say, shut up, just shut up, stop. And they still, I mean, it's like, I almost lost my mind. And it's like, whoa, it got their attention. But see, that's what happens sometimes. Ecclesiastes 5.1 puts it this way. Guard your steps as you go into the house of God. There's a temple that they had been built. And draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort in the voice of a fool through many words. What's he saying? Don't lecture God. We're not in a place to lecture God. Don't tell him how things ought to be. Don't tell him that you've now discovered how you ought to order your own life. James says, be slow to speak. Instead, be quick to listen. Ask yourselves these questions. Do you cling to your own views? Even if you've never diligently studied them? Do you often do only a cursory study of some issue without adequate tools and resources and then come to an entrenched position from which you will not be moved? Do you enjoy taking novel or maverick viewpoints of various biblical issues. When your views have been taught against, what's your response? Do you sincerely seek out the true meaning of the scripture that's being studied? Are you like the Bereans? Who Luke tells us in Thessalonica received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Or do you just take their word for it? Is that how we respond to the word of God? Be slow to speak. Slow to argue with the scriptures. Slow to present your own opinions. Sit before the word of God and let him speak to your soul. James adds that when it comes to the word, we must not only be quick to hear and slow to speak, but we also must be slow to anger. Back in James, must be slow to anger. The word there in the original language means explosion, an outburst. Um, it's, it's, it's not what you think it is. That's what we think. If I said, what do you think of when you think anger? Ah, you know, and I just lose it, right? That's what you think of. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about a settled anger. That kind of anger that, that sees under the surface. It's not this burst where somebody just completely loses it. It's the anger of, you might call it the anger of resentment. The anger here in James 1 is a resentment that builds against anything you hear from the Word of God that displeases you when you're taught the Word of God and you don't agree with the Word of God. 
you begin to see, you begin to, that's not right. See, when the word of God conflicts with our own cherished beliefs, when it calls our views or our perspectives into question, when the scripture confronts some maybe sin in our life that we cherish, how do we respond? Well, James says, don't get angry. Don't shoot the messenger. Reminded of Paul in Galatians 4.16 where he tells the Galatians, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? And apparently the Galatian, some, in, some in the Galatian church thought so. Don't get angry with the messenger. Don't get angry with God. Why should we never respond in anger to the word of God? No matter how much it runs against our own ideas, our own opinions, our own sins. Verse 20 tells us, for the anger of man, what? Does not achieve the righteousness of God. If you want to be righteous in your life, you don't go down that road. You don't get angry at God. That's not going to produce righteousness. Human anger doesn't produce the kind of righteousness that God approves of. James says you must be teachable. You must be quick to hear. You must be slow to speak. And you must be slow to anger. And the last thing here, verse 21, you must receive the word with humility. In humility, receive the word. Therefore, put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. In humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your soul. I mean, we're not talking about, you know, um, a small little idea here. We're talking about your, your soul. James has simply reminded us of what we already know in verses 19 to 20. And here's what he says. Here's the practical application. Verse 21, therefore. He begins a sentence with a participle. It's translated putting aside. Therefore, put aside. Lay aside. Main verb in verse 21 is the word receive. So putting aside, receive. He's not just saying put all this stuff aside and you don't have anything to fill the gap. No, he says put all this stuff aside and receive the word of God. In the original language, the construction implies that the putting aside must happen before we can receive the word. (laughs) Having put aside, receive. I mean, that word putting aside in the New Testament has the image of taking off dirty clothes. Literally, sometimes used of taking off a coat. But often it's used of taking off the evil or sinful attitudes of our lives or behaviors that were part of our lives before Christ. And that's what he means here specifically. James says, take off all filthiness or anything that's morally dirty. In other words, lay it aside as you would a dirty coat, a dirty piece of cloth. And all that remains of wickedness, literally the abundance of wickedness. The word wickedness probably referenced all forms of sinful and wicked, evil activity of his day. So what does he say here? We must lay aside all these things. It isn't that you have to be perfect to receive the word of God. Clearly, that's not his message because we're not perfect. It's that you have to be willing to let go of all that's dirty and all the abundance of wickedness in your life. You must be willing, here's the bottom line, to let go of anything that the Word tells you needs to be let go of, no matter how much 
you cherish it, whether it's sinful act, sinful ideas, doctrinal confusion, doctrinal error, whatever the word tells you is wrong, you must be willing to lay it aside. See, when that's your attitude, when you get to that point, then, then you're really honestly ready to be taught. You're truly teachable. So he says, in you receive the word. And when you've come to the attitude of you're willing to let go of whatever it is in your life that remains, if the word of God points it out, then you're receiving the word in humility. And notice the word receive is not merely listening. Have you ever given somebody advice and they're just smiling? You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know they're not going to do what you're telling them to do. They have no intention of listening to you. Right? He's saying don't do that with the word of God. In his commentary, James Hybert wrote this. He says, the readers had to go beyond a passive acquiescence to the statements of the word and by a and by a definite volitional response. In other words, by a definite act of will, welcome the word as an active working force in their lives. Have you ever, by a defiant, a definite act of your will, welcomed the word and its active work in your life? Have you ever invited God to use his word to change everything you think? In every way you believe. That same word brought life to our dead hearts. Verse 18, he tells us it's a tool the Spirit uses to shape us into the image of Christ. I'm reminded of what Jesus said in his earthly, his priestly prayer in John 17, 17. He says this, Father, sanctify them, make them holy by means of the truth. Well, what's the truth? What does he say? Your word is truth. You must be teachable. You must receive. You must welcome the word of God in humility into your lives to do its work. I'll close with one one last reading out of Nehemiah chapter 8. Verse 1, it says, And all the people that had returned gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly of men and women, and all who could listen with understanding. It's not just listening, but it's listening with understanding. On the first day of the seventh month, he read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate from early morning, literally from light, from when the sun rose, from the time it was light enough to read, until midday, in the presence of men and women, those who could understand. And all the people were attentive. Take note of that. They were attentive. They weren't sleeping. They weren't looking at their phones. They weren't daydreaming. All the people were attentive to the book of the law. Think about it. Six hours, Ezra read, and they stood there listening attentively. I mean, I've, I've stood maybe four hours, maybe five hours for some things. I know 
when the Blue Angels come to San Francisco, I'm known to go up on Coit Tower, and I'll stand there for a good five hours to watch a good air show. Doesn't bother me. Could I stand there and listen to somebody read the word of God? Verse 9, Then Nehemiah, who was governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Don't mourn or weep. You see, the response to the word of God, who it's reading, was weeping. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. They realized how badly they had disobeyed God. And he said, this is a celebration. He says, go eat the fat, the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Don't be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, be still, for the day is holy. Don't be grieved. So they went away to eat and to drink and to send portions and to celebrate a great festival because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Verse 13 says, On the second day, the heads of the fathers households of all the people, the priests and the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe that they might gain insight into the words of the law. Down in verse 18. You see him reading there from the book of the law of God daily, all seven days of the feast. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. They come together with sackcloth and, and, and dirt on them to acknowledge their sin. It says they confessed their sins and their iniquities. While they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a fourth of the day. And for another fourth, they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. See, that's what it looks like. That's God's standards of being te- eager, being teachable, being quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, receiving it with humility, welcoming the word of God. I mean, we should have that eager response as believers. We should be teachable. We should be willing to ask God to create that kind of desire in our hearts as men. Because that will, that will trickle down to our wives and our families. 